Welcome back to Conversations. I'm Bill Crystal. Very pleased to be joined today by longtime friend and colleague, Jonathan V. Last. Worked together at the Weekly Standard for over two decades, I guess. 22 years. Unbelievable. Good years. And now at The Bulwark, you're doing a fantastic job editing that. I, I don't really do much except occasionally forward a piece to you, which you improve. And uh, uh, I don't even write the pieces. I just forward ones that come in and, and you improve them. And it's, it's that's been terrific. On the side somehow, while dealing with a million current events, you wrote a terrific book, uh, what, six years ago, I think? Yes. 2013, yep. What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. Um, and I thought we could talk to take a little break from all Trump and everything else and talk demographics, which are important underlying facts. The it's, most important thing in the world. Is it, yeah. you think? Basically. Well, yeah, yeah. Moynihan used to say that demography is destiny. I always slightly rebelled against it, but I don't know why it seemed like it was taking away too yeah. much power from us, you know what I mean? Destiny is too strong a word. I, what I always say is that demography sort of shapes the contours of what's possible, That's if good. that makes sense. Um, I think of demographics as like the tectonic plates operating under everything else. Yeah. And so you, you have economics, you have culture, you have politics, all those things happening. But the shape of them is always influenced in a very deep way by demographics. And you can go too much nuts on this. Like you can become like a numerologist who's like, but if you look at the number seven and you, know, right, you, right, you think right. that it's, it's everywhere. Uh, but you, you can't be blind to how important demographics is. And this book was very well received when it came out and uh, still in print, I believe. Is that right? Very much so. Okay, yes. Buy Order a copy. Buy right seven. Uh, should, and I thought what we would do today is yeah. let's walk through the argument, which was surprising at the time, though I think widely accepted once people looked at the data you marshaled, um, and then talk, let's update it six years and tell me what the real situation is. So basically, I'll let you explain the book, not me, but when I was in college and grad school, it was the population bomb, and that was going to change everything, and everything was spiraling out of control in terms of the numbers of people on the planet and the country and everywhere else. And uh, that was in the 70s, and what, 45 years later or so? Yeah. Um, I guess maybe 50. Yeah, years later, you, well, 40 years later, whatever, you wrote uh, this book, and what, what, what did you find? And what's, I was right. You were and right. They were not. <laughs> yes. Uh, so here's what happened. So Paul Ehrlich publishes in 1968, The Population Bomb, and he says that within a couple years, so he is not projecting far out to the future, he's saying just in you know, 24 months or so, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death, uh, overpopulation is going to ravage the planet, there's no escaping it. There's nothing we can do. Uh, and his book, which is insane, and I would say if you read it, it is just superficially and obviously insane, turns out to not just be wrong in every particular, but is wrong at the moment when the exact opposite is happening. So in beginning in about 1966, fertility rates and birth rates around the developed world start falling off a cliff. and all through the years, those intervening 45 years, when, when in popular culture, everybody was worried about the population bomb and too many people and overcrowding and environmental disaster, all serious academic demographers were looking at the exact opposite question, which is to say they were trying to understand the full scope of fertility decline, where it was happening, why it was happening, and how far it was going to go. And so you had this total disconnect between the academic so world yeah, but the and the culture popular really world. bought on to the Ehrlich thing, 100%. even if not maybe quite as insane a version of it. 
But you think the academics, uh, in the academic world, it was pretty clear pretty early that that was yeah. not the case? Very, very clear. But they just didn't bother to tell the rest of us, or they, no one wanted well, nobody, to hear it? Well, nobody wanted to hear it, right? Yeah. I mean, Paul Ehrlich was on The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson would give over a whole hour of The yeah. Tonight Show to Paul Ehrlich, who, it is always worth repeating, was not a demographer. Like, he was, he was an entomologist, so he studied butterfly populations. So his entire worldview was based around the dynamics in butterfly populations. And everybody just sort of accepted that. And it's it fed into the general it, well, cause of calamity right, in the 1970s. Right? Yeah, you know, everything felt like it was going wrong in the 1970s. And this felt like part of that. Okay, so what's the truth? So the truth is that beginning in the late 1960s, across the developed world, birth rates started going down. And this has continued basically unabated from 1968 until today. And now, it birth rates can go down while population continues to go up, just to be correct. clear here, right? Correct, correct. Because so, you have a huge built-in, so to speak. Uh, so there's momentum, right? So, right. so what you have to see is you have to see demographic momentum eventually petering out. And the golden number is always 2.1. So the total fertility rate, which is the number of children that the average woman has over the course of her lifetime, if that's 2.1, your population is going to remain stable. If it is above that, population grows. Below that, population declines. And so the way population momentum works is you have to wait for the last above replacement rate generation to die before the numbers shrink. Does so that make sense? It, so it's had, growing, growing, growing. If you growing. had a faster, uh, higher fertility rate in the 50s and 60s, Correct. you're going to still have population growth in absolute numbers in the 80s and 90s. Correct. Because they had more kids, and so they're still... Another, and all those people are still alive. And there's another echo boom of those kids, I guess, also. Yes. But at some point, you tip over, and the and so the actual fertility rate starts to drive. Correct. Yeah. So we've been below replacement in America now since the early 1980s, late 1970s. Uh, when I wrote this book six years ago, the fertility rate in America was 1.97. Today, it's 1.80. Uh, that's not a huge decline, but it's a serious decline in a very short time. And the context of that's it is important. Six years, it's gone yeah. from one. But that's a big decline. I mean, it's, these numbers sound like they're close, right. but of course, 0.17 on a basis of 1.9 is 10% roughly. Correct. Which is a pretty big change in less than a decade. It is. When nothing much was happening in a certain way. It was not like we were in the middle of a depression. Well, no, but something was happening. We were not in the middle of a depression. Right. So the, the optimistic view back when I was writing the book was uh, fertility rates are artificially low right now because of the Great Recession. And once we have an economic rebound, then people will start having kids again. So what's really mark, uh, marked and important about this is that the decline happens while we're in economic expansion over the last six years. Uh, and, and that is the context of, again, which what I suggest in the book was all of the available evidence suggested that the, the glide path we are on in America, and frankly in the rest of the world too, is continued decline, and we don't have any way of knowing where and when it stops. And we have no reason to think that there's a rebound coming. There is no evidence to suggest that there is a rebound, where most models sort of go and assume that eventually everybody snaps back to 2.1. Uh, and that turns out to not not have any real basis. So people thought in the 80s and 90s, well, we're in a little bit of a lull, but it's going to come back. Right. And it didn't come back. And it didn't come back. Yes. Or not really at all, is what you're saying. And, and again, Just you to get see clear this what this number means. So 1.8 means that all in, all women, including some who have no kids and some who have sex and whatever, the average woman in the United States over in, in, in her childbearing years is going to have 1.8 kids fewer than two Correct. kids. Correct. Correct. 
And, uh, and the other half of this, and we can talk more about immigration later if you want, the other rosy part of this, the scenario, so six years ago when I was writing this, the people who thought maybe this isn't so bad, uh, and this was a valid argument, was, well, we have a whole lot of Hispanic immigrants in America. Their fertility levels are higher, and so they'll carry us through. And the other thing we've seen over the last six years is tremendous drops in uh, fertility levels from Hispanic Americans who were at 2.35 when I wrote the book and are now under replacement. They're now just at 2.0 today. So, yeah, I mean, the, you think the, so that's the total all Hispanic. Fertility So immigrants might probably a little higher. Total immigrants, probably a little higher, but Hispanic origin immigrants, such a huge per, uh, huge percentage of the total immigrant pie right. when you look at foreign-born populations in the U.S. And you, you could even say that it is the Hispanic drop which is really responsible for the lion's share of the total drop in the U.S. And this is something which, frankly, nobody saw coming. If you go back 20 years, uh, the fertility projections in the U.S. were predicated upon the idea that recent Hispanic immigrants in subsequent generations would stay at more or less the same fertility patterns of their parents. And that has not been the case. And what you've seen is uh, they've assimilated very, very quickly in terms of following the fertility patterns of native-born Americans. And has that generally been true in the developed world? My sense is that, that's, that, that, that everyone assimilated faster than people thought to the modern world, the modern world being low replacement rates. So it's true, it's true almost everywhere. So this is, this is the, the bigger story about this when you look outside of our borders, right. is that this is happening almost everywhere. Uh, I think it's 97% of the countries in the world are, are on a declining glide path for fertility. There's a handful of places, uh, typically in high-conflict areas like the Stands and you know, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, uh, a couple countries in the sub-Saharan African region which still have elevated fertility rates that have not fallen yet. But everywhere else, from China to Germany to Japan to Greece to Brazil to Mexico, Iran, everybody else's fertility rates are falling. And it is a global phenomenon which has some common causes, uh, which are the same country to country, and some unique causes which are unique to the situation politically or economically or culturally. If it's happening everywhere, it sounds like it's a modernity thing, a technology thing, I mean, birth control and so forth, a culture thing. It women, is. Women not thinking of themselves primarily or uh, uniquely as you know, mothers and et cetera, a modern medicine thing where if the kids survive, you don't need to have as many, you know, you, you don't yeah. want to have as many kids if you don't need to, so to speak. I mean, the, the single biggest driver in declining fertility is the decline in infant mortality, which is a great thing, right? No, nobody thinks this is bad. Right. But you see, as infant mortality suddenly tightens up in the early 1900s, you see, again, people just everywhere stopping having as many kids because you don't have to have 10 kids to get six of them to survive. Uh, but people don't stabilize the six kids. Although, I mean, if a mortality net, net shouldn't change it if people are being, I mean, this isn't the way people were, but rationally calculating and they say, okay, if six out of 10 used to survive, now it'll be six out of seven or six out of six, right. and so I'll have six or seven kids. But that's not actually what happened. No, that, that, that was like an, inter, an interim moment. Right, exactly, and, exactly. So what we have then is a the large-scale factors, the things that affect basically everybody. Uh, higher rates of women's education, more education women get, the lower fertility rates get, uh, availability of contraception, um, 
concentration in urban areas. There has, as mm. long as we've been measuring fertility patterns everywhere, whether it's in the Roman Empire or you know early U.S. settlements, mm. the people in the countryside always have more kids than the people in the cities, whatever city and density means at that moment. Uh, so all of those things are true, but then you have particular causes, for instance, in the Soviet Union. So this is something that was unexpected. When the Berlin Wall fell, uh, you would have assumed, or maybe you wouldn't have, but I would have assumed that Russian fertility, which had been depressed all through the Soviet era, would have increased. Yeah, one would have assumed. Yeah. And instead it dropped precipitously. Uh, I think almost nobody could have predicted that. Well. Uh, you have the, the one-child policy in China, which drove Chinese fertility down from already a very rapid decline to truly you know, bad levels. Uh, and it has not, even though China has now, since I wrote the book, has done away with the one-child policy. I said in the book, it was funny, you know, one of, the, one of my gripes in the book was that there's always environmentalists and uh, foolish people in American public policy who praise China's one-child policy right, right, without right. realizing how bad it was for China. And in the interim, China realized how bad it was for China and has done away with it. And it hasn't made a difference. We're not seeing any increases in Chinese fertility. Now, let's just so walk through the numbers briefly, I mean, both in the U.S. and the world, because you do have this built-in lag, I guess you'd call it, which uh, has meant that population has gone up in this country and has gone up around the world and has gone up in most countries of the world, I guess, the, the large majority. But when do we start to tip over? So we're, well, I guess there's an immigration issue, but let's just say if you leave aside or just hold immigration constant, I guess, in different places. Right. W what is our situation first in the U.S.? So we're at 330, whatever we're at. So million. we're at 330 million now. It is difficult to tell when our population tips over because of immigration. We have such massive amounts of immigration that it's hard to know, right? Uh, and that is something which has not been constant over the course of our country's history. We've had high immigration periods in American history and then low immigration but periods. But ex-immigration, without immigration? Without immigration, we would be tipping over in about 30 years. And we would so start we still plateauing. still have some built-in growth, so yeah. to speak. Some places are already in contraction. Uh, Italy is losing people year on year. Japan is losing people year on year. I mean, that's really something to think about. Uh, Japan more, because Japan has um, no immigration to speak of. Italy has some immigration from Albania. Russia losing people year on year. Uh, Germany, maybe, I think. Well, so Germany has a lot of immigration, too. Oh, yeah. So Germany is bringing in not only uh, this sort of historical legacy with Turkey, where they bring in a lot of Turks, but they've also brought in a lot of people from the Syrian uh, refugee right. crisis. Uh, so anyway, so the EU has all the, the, the big, big picture of this. The, the models the EU s uses say that we think by the end of the century, so in another 70 years or so, world population tops out. They, world population. World population tops out somewhere between 9 and 12 billion and then starts declining. And EU population what we would call the, the developed world, will have topped out earlier. Much earlier. Because that's the Correct. leading By edge. 2050, 2070. So really, Europe starts to shrink. Yes. The historic, you know. <laughs> now, we'll get back to the question Cradle of, of civilization. why isn't this unfair to say it's a disaster and why is it bad necessarily, but that's sort of a separate question, and what, what are the real effects and implications of that? What about, now what about the massive countries, China and India? Where, where are they on this trajectory? So China is going to contract sooner. Right, so China has now been sub-replacement since about 1980. Uh, so they've got another 30 years or so before they contract. But China has all sorts of stuff built into So really into it takes problems. like 60 years of sub-replacement to get to Yeah, you have to wait for that last above-replacement generation to die. Um, 
But China has an extra problem built in, which is that they have a huge gender imbalance. Uh, the Chinese, because of the one-child policy, were widely practicing sex-selective abortion, where if you can only have one kid, there was a huge societal preference for sons. And so once ultrasounds were available, there was a lot of find out if the kid is a boy or girl, and if it's a girl, abort the kid. Right. Uh, in nature, you get about 107 boys for every 100 girls that are born. Uh, in China, it's about 125 for every 100 girls. So this is not a small imbalance. It's a huge one. And what this suggests is that over the course of the next 50 years or so, you're going to have a huge population of unmarriageable men. That is, in an authoritarian country, a dangerous thing to have. And this, I don't know when you want to talk about it, but when we talk about why all this stuff is dangerous, it's not dangerous in isolation. If it's just America or just Greece, like these things are fine. You can manage your way out of them. There might be some unpleasantness, there might be some sluggish growth, but it's basically fine. The problem is that when you have fertility declines everywhere happening almost at the same time, and some of these places are stable societies and some places are very unstable, everything becomes a, a powder keg. And you can see your way towards all sorts of really bad outcomes, like, for instance, in China. I mean, when I think of, of China and the foreign policy challenges China represents to us, the thing what strikes me is how precarious a situation a regime is in there. And you already have uh, the labor pool shrinking a little bit. You have no pension system to speak of. And because of one child, they're going to have about 300 million retirees, retirees, but with no social security system and no children to take care of them. What happens to those people? Do, do they just all become homeless? Do they get sent out to the countryside to die? This is something that a country that, which did the Cultural Revolution, I think, would probably consider a policy option. But what sort of instability does that create? You see right. what I'm saying? Like, everything becomes very uncertain and so you need a lot of good you, luck. Yeah. I mean, if you're Japan, you can decide, I suppose, or not decide, but you can accept the fact that you're just going to be steady state or slightly shrinking or even not so slightly shrinking population. Radical shrinkage in Japan. Yeah. yeah. But you're wealthy. You handle it. More That's money right. goes to, to help take care of old people, but whatever. It's a, you know, it's a social security. It's a counting question more than a, or a budget question yeah. more than a fundamental question. Maybe at some point it does become fundamental. I guess that would be... So we'll, well, let's get to the... So that does get to the broader implications. Um, India, though, just for another place that in my... When I was in college and grad school was, you know, that was right, just population endless... population explosion. Yes, in endless population. Probably would lead to terrible things, et cetera, out of control. That's yeah, they're heading the same direction as everybody else. And again, they also have a, a sex-selective abortion problems. So they have more more men than they know what to do with. Uh, in, Afri- yeah, even the poor, this- even the poorer parts of the world, Africa and. Most of Africa, not sub-Saharan Africa. Again, one of the things you see is that, and this is a good on the the credit side of the ledger. One of the good things you see is that countries with declining fertility rates tend not to be especially belligerent. So if you've got a population of you know, a total fertility rate of like 1.7, all things being equal, you tend not to be a belligerent. Places where the, popu- the fertility rate is very high tend to be places like Yemen or Afghanistan, where there is substantial long-term conflict. Uh, and you could even see this as literally making enough sons to run wars. I mean, this right. is kind of how things are there. Uh, so, yeah, great. Okay, so, so that so it all tips over gradually over the course of the next whatever years. 
Because it does feel to me like it's a huge difference when you actually start shrinking the population as opposed to slowing the rate of growth of the population. Yeah, well, and that's because of what happens when you, when you shrink the population. So it's important to understand that the undergirding all of this is the age structure yeah, so, so of that's society. Not, so I was thinking that, we, yeah, we need to get to that next. Yeah. So how does that look different? Okay, so think about what, if, you, if, you, if I had a whiteboard, I would do this for you. Um, we have what are called population pyramids. So uh, graphs which show you the population in bands of age. And in a normal, let's just call it a steady state society, 2.1 fertility rate, it's gonna kind of look like an obelisk, right? So you have the same number of five-year-olds as 10-year-olds as 20-year-olds. Right. In your 30s, you start going in a little bit because you know some people start dying a little young. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, starts going in and then it really kind of comes to a point as more people die off. When you wind up with sub-replacement fertility rates, your pyramid gets inverted. And so you wind up with fewer people down at the and bottom. just to be clear, for most of history and most of world history and most of U.S. history, the pyramid was pretty... For most of human history... Pretty, what's the right word? The pyramid was at a, so. an angle like this, yeah. right? So, I mean... Many, many, many more young people than old people. Yes. So, you know, I mean, we had total world population in 1750 was about 800 million people. And what happened, the real population explosion came from death control, right? Just the idea of being able to take lifespans and move them out from an average of about 35 to where we are today, which is where it's like 70 or so. Uh, and so that is what has changed all of the total population numbers. So when you look at the inverted population graphs, you see, again, fewer people in those working years and, and youth ages, and then lots more people at the top. And so when you look at, say, Japan, it really does look like an upside-down triangle. And you wind up with many more people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s than in their teens and 20s. And that points the way to all the problems, right? Like, what happens to your economy? when you, you have so few people working. Uh, what happens to your pools of capital, right? I mean, young people need to aggress cap uh, invest capital in sort of aggressive ways because they have long time horizons. Old people are just drawing down capital. Uh, what happens with Social Security or whatever your country's version of Social Security and Medicare is? Uh, or even cultural dynamism and markets. I mean, yeah. in some ways, for better or worse, maybe some people don't like it, but the whole modernity seems to have depended on a sort of the youth having a lot of buying power yeah. to drive change, whether it's technological or cultural or young, you know, pop, you know, popular music or whatever, that starts to change pretty radically. If the buy, you know, if there are many, many more seventy-year-olds than fifteen-year-olds, correct. And there is again, the rosy view of this has long been: well, don't worry about it because technology is changing so fast. The old people are still going to be able to be economically useful for longer. And I understand the roots of that, right, is you are no longer in an industrial society. You could say, okay, well, a seven-year-old might not be able to work in a steel stamping plant, but they could work as a computer programmer, except it turns out not to actually work that way. If you have any 70- or 80-year-old friends in your life that you maybe would not think could go out and learn to code, right. um, it just doesn't work out that way. Right. So... You think it leads to economic slowdown, and uh, yeah. there's a lot of evidence of that, I suppose. That Tons of evidence of this. This is You want more people coming into the workforce if you want to have a growing economy. Yeah, this is just the, the nature of, 
of the piece. So almost by definition, right? Growing economies have more people in the workforce. Uh, and you see this in, in Japan, for instance, which is Japan is an interesting model for this because they, because they hit their tipping point so early. They were sub-replacement by like 1950. And because they have no immigration, they are like the perfect little lab experiment for what everything looks like. And remember the remember all the stuff in the popular press about Japan's lost economic decade yeah. in the 90s, right? So we're now in like year 30 of the lost economic decade. And everybody understands it's not a lost decade. This is just what demographic winter looks like from an economic point wow. of view. So all the talk about the central bank making this mistake. And yeah, that turns out not to have been the case. So demography is fundamentally important in this, in this yes. respect, do you think, for the kind economic performance? And on the more cultural, well, that's interesting. So we're we all going to kind of go in that vague direction of economic slowdown. Probably, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. they have a lot well, of innovation, developed. I suppose, I mean, sort of, in Japan. They do. I mean, it's a different kind Robotics of society, stuff, right? So right. you see, like, cafes, and this is literally a thing you see, you know, former daycare centers being turned into anti-aging clinics. There is now a – because the other, the other piece of this, of course, is that as people get older, they, the society is more atomized because you don't have extended families, right? When you have only 1.3 kids, 1.5 kids, it means that most kids are only children. Uh, there are plenty of parents who have no children whatsoever. Uh, and that changes society, too. Very few aunts, very few uncles. Uh, Japan has seen the explosion of what they call lonely death syndrome which is where old people die alone in an apartment and nobody knows they've died because they have no connections. And there's a whole industry which has sort of sprouted up in Tokyo to go and clean out apartments where old people have died and been dead for like two months with nobody knowing it. Jeez. And that is, again, you could say this is the free market responding to it and see everything's fine. But on the other hand, I'm not sure this is a alternate reality that we really want to embrace. But do we have any... Is there any history of societies, you know, dealing with this? I mean, of sort of negative growth. I mean, it, when medicine was much, much worse, you did have plagues. People, lost, countries lost a quarter no. of their population. <laughs> Not bad. No. But you don't have much. We don't so, have much of it. Much, much historical evidence to sort of what this kind of society, culturally, economically, you know. Uh, politically looks like. We have seen population decline a few times in human history. Uh, it has never before been accompanied by peace and prosperity. Uh, it always looks like the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages or the fall of Rome or something like that. Uh, it's possible this time could be different, right? I think we should never blind ourselves. This is why I rebel a little bit against demography as being destiny. Right. It's true that this time could be different, but it always makes me nervous to, to hang your hat on that. So on the one hand, there's fewer males of war fighting age, so maybe that's good. But on the other hand, you're saying other aspects of it do have a feel of instability and a kind of decadence, which doesn't just go quietly and gracefully into the night, right? It's yeah, sort of and you explodes. wind up with like real misery. Again, it is one thing to confront demographic troubles in a rich country. It is very different to do it in a poor country. You know, if you are in Nigeria or right. some parts of South America or many parts of India, um, I mean, that is a, a human tragedy uh, at a scale that we, I think, don't want to think about. 
it's so interesting because, of course, it's the opposite of what everyone's thought all these years, which is if only they could get their population growth under control, they could right. actually accumulate capital and educate right. people. But if you're going to have nine kids, I mean, that's just, a, you know, it's just keeping you at the poverty line forever. But it's in a way you're saying it's more Well, there's the a truth to it. The problem is it's an overcorrection, right? I mean, one of the things, you know, when people complain about me, they say, oh, you want everybody to have six kids. And I say, look, it doesn't matter what I want. Um, right. I don't want anything. Uh, but in terms of developed countries which have adapt, uh, adopted welfare state-like plans to have social safety nets to take care of people, you cannot make those plans on a declining population. Maybe you don't need a growing population, but you at least need a steady state, right? If you, if you could just keep fertility around replacement, then you could actually stand up some sort of system that maybe the taxes are higher than we would like, maybe the benefits are lower than we'd like, but you can make rational calculations that are sustainable over the long haul. You just can't make that when fertility rates are going in the other direction. Because again, that age pyramid messes everything up for you. Which leads to the obvious question, how much ability do we have to influence this? These things so seem to kind is... of be driven by things beyond normal political control. No one decided that I know of. In 1966 or 68, let's tip over the fertility rate yep. here. And, you know, I mean, you can look back and say this happened, that happened, birth control, you know, cultural changes, women troll. I mean, many things happened that led to it, undoubtedly. But it doesn't seem like it's either. Well, is this, how susceptible is it to either public policy changes or even massive cultural changes? Or is this stuff, once it starts to happen, have a certain self-reinforcing character? So the answer is both. Uh, and I'll unpack that a little bit. There is an extent to which birth rates work as a ratchet with public policy. You can push birth rates down if you want to. China showed they could do this. India showed they could do this. Singapore showed they could do this. If you are an autocratic government who is willing to kill people and burn down their houses and have them fire them, fire them from their government jobs, you can force people to stop having babies. Uh, it is not clear that you can force them to have more. There have been a lot of attempts, both from developed democracies, ranging from the Scandinavian countries to France, uh, to even parts of, of Asia, to autocratic countries like China, and trying to incentivize childbearing. And that is a very heavy lift. You know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it's easy to tell people, don't do this, but it's hard to say, you know, go make a baby right now. And so you're a little skeptical that if we quadruple the child deduction and, you know, have child care for everyone and have every mother-friendly, you know, friendly policies in terms of parents, parental leave, and all the obvious kinds of things that people in both parties, that's sort of a left-right thing, right, are talking about, you don't think it that's unlikely to make a big difference? Uh, unlikely to make a big difference, might make some difference certainly worth experimenting. Again, some lots of people matters, have some difference matters at the edge. And when you're a country, if we were at 1.4, then some difference doesn't matter. But where we are 1.8, some difference could matter quite a lot, actually. If you could get some marginal movement, that might be good. Uh, I'm very much in favor of experimenting with what I like to think of as bank shots. Um, you know, we don't think of college costs as a pronatalist measure, but I think college is a reasonably large driver um, because it, it hits on both sides. Huge college costs, and college costs and student debt force people to delay family formation at the beginning. And then once they start having kids, it's an engine governor telling them, boy, this is too expensive. You're going to have to send this kid to college someday. So attacking college costs 
again, doesn't sound like it's pronatalism, but might have some effects. Uh, there are areas like that that I think are worth expanding on. I, I get very nervous about saying, like, you, you can't do this because you can always not do it until you do, right? right and right. this is why policy exists. Um, but in the main, big cultural forces of any kind historically tend to be resistant to policy. And honestly, if you go back to 1946, you would never have been able to predict the baby boom. So if you look at... It wasn't like we radically changed policies in ways no. that led to people having more kids. American fertility had been declining literally since the first census was taken in 1800. So a steady decline until all of a sudden we hit the post-war years and it doubles. And then it stays doubled for a full generation. So that is out of nowhere and happened not just here but across much of the developed world. So you can't, you know, no, nobody can predict an inquisition. Uh, you, you can't predict whatever that was that, that got into the water and into the culture. Uh, and that isn't to say that it could not happen again. But what I, what I think of is, is this, the most, the most promising thing is what the demographers and sociologists call aspirational fertility. So when you ask people in a perfect world, how many kids would you like to have? And here in America, that number has been pretty high. It's been about 2.4 since the 1970s. Hmm. And so it has been almost unchanged, even as actual fertility rates have gone down. So that suggests a real gap between achieved and aspirational fertility. I would look to try to fill that gap rather than try to convince people to have kids that they're ambivalent about having. But the way to fill the gaps would be to take away some of the disincentives that now cause a couple, presumably, to say after the first kid or after the second kid, since you're at 2.4 aspirationally, that means almost half the people want three, right? Yeah. Rather than two, not half, but whatever percentage. Um, yeah. And the, the so danger. That, and so that's a college cost issue and a child care issue and a right. housing issue, I suppose. And, and just a family formation issue, right? So we are now the first period in American history where the largest growth in births is coming from women over the age of 30, wow. which is, is crazy. And so this is, this is what the demographers call the tempo effect. People want to have kids, but they feel the, like they the can't what? do tempo. it. The tempo effect. So they keep tempo. pushing everything back further and further. And this has been enabled by technology, right? You, you have ways to have kids now when you're 40 or 41 or 42 even. The problem is that the, the technological forces which have allowed people to have babies later do run up against some hard limits. The economic forces which have been pushing people to not have babies earlier run up against no limits. I mean, those, those are essentially unfettered. What about groups within society? One has the impression, and it's clearly somewhat true, that different groups have very different birth rates. This discussion so far is sort of abstracted from that. How much do the, over, the overall trends Sweep, you know, sweep over all groups and right. tend to make them more like one another? How much do you still get big differences between, you know, secular singles in New York and evangelical huge couples in Kentucky? You know? Yeah, huge differences. And we're not talking about extinction. I mean, it's always, you know, people say, oh, what, so we're all going to run out of humans? And that's not the way it works because everybody's fertility is not constant. In any population, you're going to have some subgroups with high fertility rates, and those people eventually inherit the earth. Right. Uh, in, in the U.S., you can break out fertility by educational attainment. You can break it out by income. You can break it out by race. You can break it out by geography. The single biggest driver, and so one of the parlor games I play is when I go out and give talks about demographics. Uh, you know, I will 
tell somebody, I, I, let me ask you three questions and then I'll tell you how many kids you have. Hmm. And the first question I always want to know is how often do you attend religious services? Because that is the single biggest driver, bigger than education, bigger wow. than race, as to what your fertility patterns are going to be. Higher, more higher, religious, lower. higher. And this is, this is a new phenomenon because the patterns used to be sectarian. So it used to be that Catholics had more kids than Protestants who had more kids than Jews. The sectarian differences have essentially all converged. And now it's the religiosity differences that are really, really telling. I mean, 1.6 is the total fertility rate for people who don't go to church at all. People who go Christmas and Easter at about 2.1. People who are once a month or a little bit higher than that. And then the people who are at services once a week are around 2.6. So you see very real patterns that I think wind up being suggestive of what you meant when you said, are there cultural differences at at play here? Because I think that's what religiosity is really about. It isn't about the the textual commandment of any one religion. It's about a cultural view of one's place in the world. But even among the religious, that's gone down. I mean, there has been the overall trend yes. remains down. Yes. So it was once three point something and now Correct. it's two point six or whatever. Correct. But it's still much higher than. Still much so higher. So it has big effects on the internal composition of a society of yeah. politics. Of, so Eric Kaufman, a very smart professor at Harvard, wrote uh, a book just about this called "Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth," in which he uh, he's looked at all the data and so he looked at the pass on rate of religion from parents yeah, to that kids would be a question maybe the, the kids with the religious don't remain religious then it doesn't right so the pass on the pass on rate is actually amazingly high um, you can if you are a parent who wants your kids to be religious you can do that pretty much uh, the attrition rate is actually surprisingly low and then the differential the fertility differential between non-practicing and practicing and what Kaufman suggested was that he thinks it's possible that we are kind of living in the high water mark of secularism in America mm. in that we are likely to become a slightly more religiously orthodox country over the next 50 or 60 years. Um, and it's funny, you know, it's people on the left don't want to hear that. And I don't fully understand why. So my, my buddy Phil, uh, <laughs> Phil Longman, who is one of the smartest guys in Washington who wrote the best book about demographics, uh, and who is himself a progressive lefty, wrote an essay in foreign policy, I think, essentially saying that, you know, patriarchy is going to win unless liberals have more kids. And he was practically stoned for it. You know? right, <laughs> what he was saying right. is just like, hey, if you listen to NPR, that's great. You're my kind of people. Why don't you have one more kid? Uh, and I make that case when I go out and I talk to people. I say, look, I, I love my progressive friends. I wish there were more of you. Have another kid. Mm-hmm. And they, they find that a very disheartening message and it's probably not being listened to uh no <laughs> i mean they're not but that's okay i don't want that on my head any specific yeah it's not your thing but i'm saying but i'm saying generally speaking there's no evidence of much of a reversal is there evidence of a reversal there's a little bit of a geez i don't want to be part of a society that's shrinking any kind of i mean i'm really struck by i had not realized actually since i read your book when it came out obviously we talked a lot about it and haven't talked that much in the last few years and you haven't really written that much i don't think uh, 197 to 180, even if it's mostly recent immigrants assimilating to the American norm, that's a pretty big drop, isn't it? I it mean, is. It's a it's a really big drop. And, and I guess we can't just assume that it doesn't keep going. And that's the assumption one wants to make is, well, of course, it stabilizes somewhere. But what well, is the truth about that? Do these things, sta- is there some place where when we look at 
a Russia or a Greece or a Japan where, of course, ultimately it sort of stabilizes? Or how low can it go, I guess, is another question. So people used to think that what they called lowest low, which was a term of art, was anything below 1.5. Uh, since then, most of Europe is around 1.5. If you look in parts of Asia, you see 1.3 or 1.1. And I think, I think Singapore went sub-1 to 0.9 for a year or two. Uh, you have to understand that total fertility rate is sort of a statistical construct, right? It's like a snapshot in time where you're making a bunch of... So don't. I always tell people, don't like get hung up on the absolute numbers of these things. You're always just looking at like big trend lines. Uh, the real concern is, is actually about what we were talking about with aspirational fertility, because there are places now where aspirational fertility is below replacement level. And that is suggestive of the real, like, go hide away, like bad things are coming. Because when people don't even want to have replacement levels of kids, then the chances of having any rebound effect are almost nil. But it also suggests that this is a, a norm which can re-anchor. So sociologists for generations thought uh, that two would be the lowest that it could possibly go. The plurality preference for two kids was just natural. We are hardwired for it. And about 10 years ago, we first saw some evidence in a couple European countries of sub-replacement, like 1.9, then 1.7 uh, as aspirational fertility targets. And we've seen more of that. We see it creeping up in a couple of places in China. And what that suggests is if you spend your whole life in a lowest low society, you begin to think that that is ideal. Hmm. So, so this is a, it's just an empirical question. What is the, has the decline slowed down? I mean, has the curve kind of started to stabilize over 30, 40 years, both in the US and around the world, developed world, around the world as a whole, or is it not slowing down. I mean, how we, I mean. The curve, the rate of decline in the developed world has slowed down you because that, it's course, so low. It's, yeah, it's right. not going to be as fast from 1.7 to 1.6 as it right. was from 3.2 to 3.1, right? The rate of the curve in the developing world is still quite steep. When you look wow. at what's happening in Iran, when you look at what's happening in Mexico, Mexico's fertility is now peaking below replacement. Mexican fertility, the Mexican fertility rate will be below the U.S. fertility rate at some point. Wow. And, which is an amazing thing, which nobody on the right can believe. They think it's impossible. Um, right. So, yeah, everybody's ox gets gored in this, and nobody gets away clean. Speaking of Mexico, that uh, raises the question of immigration, which comes into these demographic debates some. How big a difference does that make? I mean, uh, both the immigrants themselves, of course, add numbers, and then they have a higher propensity, I think you were saying, at least in the first generation, to have kids. Yes. So that adds a few extra numbers. Yes. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, so immigration, it's tough to talk about it because the politics of immigration are so fraught. So I, I always try to sort of just say, let's just put politics aside yeah. and, and look at the data. Yeah. Uh, we have been lucky from a demographic standpoint to have immigration. We have about 40 million foreign-born people in the U.S. right now, about 25, 27 of them here legally, the rest illegally. Uh, those folks have higher fertility rates than native-born Americans do. The undocumented people have higher than the documented people. You see, weirdly enough, differences, uh, relative differences between the immigrants and their sending countries depending on the country. So what I mean to say is the, the people coming from Mexico, for instance, 
tend to have a higher fertility rate than the people in Mexico themselves. Right? Hmm. So the high people in the higher end of the, but this is not true with say Vietnamese. So people coming here from Vietnam have lower fertility rates than the people who are staying behind in Vietnam, which are again, just I think evocative of how much of this is cultural, right? You know, these, these things have, have deep cultural sources to them as well. So one of the things we, we look at is that our total fertility rate has been buoyed by all of this immigration which is good, uh, again, just as an objective measure, whatever costs and problems you want to say, because there is nothing for free, and I'm happy to, to stipulate to some, if, if not most of them. Uh, the problem is that those people, as we said earlier, are assimilating in their fertility patterns very quickly, which means that if you're going to keep things close to the 1.8, 1.9 mark, you've got to add more people every year, right? You see what I'm saying? So it, it's it's like... You know, when you're five games into the Major League Baseball season, you can change your batting average with a, by going three for five one day. Right. But by the time you're in September, going three for five makes almost no difference. You've got to have a whole bunch more at-bats. Right. And the, the same is true with total numbers of immigration. And for the people who say, oh, don't worry, we'll just rely on immigration, uh, th- the math doesn't really work. And eventually, you wind up at a point where You've got to be having 19 million new people every single year. And even if everybody wanted to do that, just logistically, you can't you can't build a new New York City every single year. Right. right? I mean, I don't know what we have now, but it's you got to build like schools and roads and sewers and water treatment facilities. Uh, It just isn't practical, even if it were desirable. So that's not the not the answer to all of this. And, And then there's a second problem. There's a supply problem as well as a demand problem, which is that. Historically, when countries go sub-replacement, they cease to become sending countries for immigration. So if you have you know, 1.5 as your total fertility rate in country X, you are unlikely to send a high number of immigrants anywhere. People mm-hmm. just tend to hunker down. Or maybe the opportunities are good enough in that country because there's not that many people competing for right. all these jobs and positions that you think, yeah, okay, just, I'll be fine here. Whereas if there's a huge glut of... 18-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 10-year-olds, you go or your parents send you off to somewhere more promising, right? Yeah. Well, has that impression. That was the case yeah. with a lot of American immigration, Irish, Italians, Jews from East Europe and so forth, you know, sort of. A, um, hmm, that's interesting. Well, so what about the politics? You've been sort of saying it's good. You know, you do say it in the book it's a disaster, and I, I guess we've touched on that, but just walk me through that a little more, because I guess one could say, oh, look, if this isn't going to change, we have to live with it, and we're... Um, we have ways of living with things that people didn't have 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. So is it really beyond belief that we could stabilize at 300 and I'm making this up, 80 million Americans and maybe slide down to 370 in the next 10 years after that, in 2090, you know? And that's not going to change anything much. And the same in other countries. And, you know, we'll peak out at 10 billion people in the world. And that's still a heck of a lot of people. And it's a lot more than there were. And that is impressive how much just the built-in previous growth still generates big numbers. Yeah, right. The demographic you know momentum the is a hard thing to get around. When it was 7 billion or exists now, what it, I don't even know what it is now, 7 to 8 or something, and it's going to go back to 7 to 8, and why is that so terrible? Here yeah. And so why, why, why are you not being, not alarmist in the sense that the numbers are correct, but alarmist in the sense of thinking this is somehow a big disaster, it's a cyclical thing, and right. we've never had this cycle quite before, because we've never had nearly this many people in the world before, but maybe it's okay to kind of it's just a question of getting from here to there, 
if that makes sense. Uh, from my perspective, all the dangers are in the transition. I see. I because mean, a, wor a world of eight billion is not worse than a world of ten billion. It's just right. different. I mean, right. The, the danger is going from ten billion to I eight. See. Okay, that's good. So a, explain that. That's a period of global instability. And again, I, as I said, and I, I should say it again because I can't underscore this enough. If this was just an American situation, if this was just Mexico, if this was just Japan, I would be totally sanguine about the entire thing. I would say, okay, great. So we are going to reform Social Security and Medicare, and it's going to mean that a bunch of older folks take a haircut, and it's going to be unfair to them, and a bunch of younger folks have much higher taxes, and that's going to be unfair to them, and economic growth will slow a little bit, but fine, whatever, right? You know, nothing really is going to change. Uh, the problem, again, is that it happens everywhere kind of like dominoes, and that some of those places are themselves inherently unstable, like Russia, like China, uh, like the Middle East. You know, so, so what happens if you have demographically uh, caused instability in Iran, which is a thing we have already, uh, you have demographic instability in China, uh, rising power with a giant nuclear arsenal and a burgeoning blue water navy, you have demographic instability in Russia, an autocratic country which has designs on meddling in every place else in the world. And all of this is happening while you are going through the internal political instability of trying to rationalize, say, your entitlement system, which I is guess a big just deal. Just to get clear, I mean, the instability, it could be cultural. I mean, just people aren't used to this distribution of population. It turns into the, from the pyramid into a diamond or into a reverse pyramid. Um, and that it has its own stresses and strains. But really, what, I think what you're saying, if I'm not mistaken, is that it just on a pure economic matter, you have more, you're supporting more people who aren't working. People who are working are supporting more people who aren't working. And you're not having an added number of people into the workforce, which has all kinds of positive implications, basically, just in terms of actual gross numbers, producing more, but also in terms of presumably more people more innovation. More innovation right? because is, it's just if you have this is five million people who are right. twenty years old, some small percentage of them are going to make some technological breakthrough, and if you have two million people who are twenty years old, just going to have fewer. Yes. Presumably, I mean, that would this, be, is, this is literally what labor economics is about, right? right. Esther Bozorps won a Nobel Prize for this uh, because innovation is additive, right? You don't have to rediscover everything every generation. The more people you have, the more innovation you get. Uh, and so there are advantages, and that tends to, or throughout all of human history, the innovation stuff has tended to outweigh the costs of more people. So when you talk about political instability, what you're mostly capturing, not entirely, because there sort of might be just independent kind of cultural factors and also distributions of the gender, of the sexes, of men, men and women, as you were saying before, but a lot of what you're capturing is just pure burden on working people compared to depend, more dependent people, less work, fewer percent, smaller percentage of working people, which creates its own strains and entitlements and on social services. And on politics. I mean, look at American politics, look at European politics. Uh, this is the thing I got wrong about this. I, I think almost everything, I was right about almost everything in the book, good, good. certainly about all the demographics. Um, I was wrong about the politics. Uh, my view, and I, I literally said this when I wrote the foreword to the updated paperback edition. I said, you know, we, we amazingly enough have reached a moment where both the left and the right in America have just decided that they are all in for the free market. They don't care to what extent the market 
makes it harder for people to have families. They don't care to the extent that the free market uh, depresses fertility rates. They just want to go out and buy their new iPhones, and they're happy with it. And there is no, no break on this, and that's a shame. And like six years later, we have uh, the left in America kind of rushing headlong is too strong, but at least flirting with actual socialism. And we have the right in America more than actively flirting with, with nationalism. And both sides have essentially rejected the free market to a degree which I never imagined. And I feel like the guy who said to the genie, like, make me irresistible to women, and I turn out to, like, you know, poof, and I'm, I look like Brad Pitt, but I'm a eunuch. Like, this isn't what I wanted <laughs> when right. I said we should be a little, more, a little more populist and open to trying to tinker around and make, make capitalism and the free markets more open to family life uh, and people having kids. This isn't what I was asking for. And why not? I mean, apart from particular dislike of ex-populist or why socialist, but I mean, why isn't this a good thing in the sense that people are now could have more of a discussion about what kind of society we want to have and what are the burdens on child rearing and not just have a pure kind of let the market rip and don't worry about anything. Because, and maybe I'm wrong about this too, uh, it seems to me that illiberalism is tied very, very tightly to these notions, uh, of these anti-free market notions yeah. on both the right and the left. Yeah. And people like me, who wanted a sort of more populist politics in America, thought that if we got a more populist politics in America, it would be run by Yuval Levin. Right. And it turns out that not only is that not true this time around, but maybe it was never possible. Maybe that's a, just a delusion and that when you go towards populism, it is always run by demagogues and socialists and aspirational authoritarians. Yeah. So maybe. that's a problem. Yeah, so it's, and it probably isn't even particularly good for population growth if you just get down to that. Well, it never has not, been historically. Right. I mean, so you, you, know, sort of Stalin, get the worst, you get the worst of all worlds. The worst of all worlds, You get yes. the illiberalism without the benefits, you might say, of checks on the market or family-friendly policies. Yeah, so I mean, when you look at the nationalists today who talk about demographics, they talk about it in the most idiotic way possible. Uh, as if they... Don't say a word about that. I'm sorry. Never... They do say, you, one could superficially think you should be... They, sh they read your book and they're a little learning a little bit from you and you should be sort of pleased by some of this even if they're a little bit simple-minded, but... This is not. me with the monkey paws. I want everybody to pay attention to my book, and they do, yeah. but they only pay attention to the, the, power, the parts that are not right. especially helpful unless you put them in context. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. They, they come out thinking, well, we want... Why shouldn't we have... Uh, essentially socialized daycare, right? This is like the Ivanka Trump thing, which I am fine with as an expression of values, but you just shouldn't expect it to deliver results, right? If you, if you really care about results, then you've got to experiment in very targeted ways, and you've got to look for bank shots, and you have to pay attention to what other countries have done before you, and what has worked here, and what has not worked. Uh, and we don't get any of that, right? Instead, it's all like virtue signaling. We want to we want to show that we're good for the family, so we'll do X. Uh, and the 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 more progressive left, I think, has has done almost the same, except that they can't say out loud that they they can talk about wanting to make life easier for families, but because of environmentalism, and there's still an environmentalist hold on the party, they can never say out loud hey, we want to make sure that women are allowed to have as many babies as they aspirationally desire to. Which, again, is a weird thing. I would have thought 
I mean, Elizabeth Warren's the the, the two income trap it almost says this explicitly. This is a book she wrote in like twenty years ago, I think, or fifteen years ago. Maybe. Fifteen well, years maybe ago, whatever. You I think you wrote about it in the. Statement. I did. It was. It's, it's a great book. <laughs> it's like the most conservative book written in the last thirty years. Um, I'm actually surprised it hasn't come up in the campaign. Uh, but she talks about finding ways to reform the market so that women can have the families they want to. And I don't think that sort of language is welcome in liberal circles right now, purely because of just latent environmental concerns. Even in a moment where, again, like the New York Times uh, two or three years ago went and did this huge expose about like, hey, it turns out Paul Ehrlich was wrong about everything. And when even the New York Times has given up the ghost on that, I mean, it really is just the bitter enders who are holding on to the, the population explosion stuff. And I imagine one could, ima- one could imagine, if one could get beyond the current political moment, maybe on, certainly on the right, maybe on the left too, one could imagine a grown-up discussion of the more moderate efforts to temper some of what markets have been doing. But it does also sound to me like those moderate efforts college costs, housing, make, uh, even more, you know, availability of housing, school costs, uh, even, you know, especially for not public schools, but parochial schools and others. Maybe we've discussed that a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could be tinkered with to be f- more family-friendly or more Absolutely. larger family-friendly. Absolutely. And this is one of the things I, I if I were going to, so if you had come to me 15 years ago before I wrote this book, and said, what is the way to incentivize people having more kids? I would have given you essentially like, you know, the Rick Santorum king for a day version of, well, you know, you can give people baby bonuses. You can, you know, give them tax breaks for having kids. You can set up uh, government-sponsored 401ks where they match parental savings and, and that sort of stuff. And it turns out very little of that actually works. But what you could do, or we could at least try to do and see if it works, is attack like the positional goods like housing, right? So housing is incredibly expensive because it's all driven by education, right? As a public education, your your real estate costs are entirely dependent upon the quality of your, your school system. Uh, <laughs> this is one of things Warren talks about in, in her book. And she says, she's very anti-teachers union and back then. And she says, Partly is because of the teachers union. We got to break the teachers union so that we can uh, wind up disconnecting the quality of schools from the cost of real estate. That's that is the single biggest thing we can do to help families. I think she's probably right, at least in the diagnosis, if not in the solution. Um, so those things I think could wind up being pronatalist. Maybe not. You have to look at the evidence. But I, I think those are the better ways to attack the attack the issue. Rather than just we're gonna, you have a third kid, we're gonna cut you a check for ten thousand dollars, or we're gonna set up uh, universal daycare across the country so that working moms can work to cover the cost of having their kid in daycare for eight hours a day. Yeah, I think there are all kinds of structural reasons young people looking ahead think, gee, if I have more than two kids, I mean, you're talking about big burdens, whether it's housing costs, college costs. The costs are insane. This is the, I mean, when when Phil Longman so did his book, so there you. One could imagine policy changes, since presumably those things are, you can deal with them. Those are not just like intrinsic to modern life. You know, we they have are. a certain structure of higher education and college costs that could be changed. I mean, and uh, and you're saying that could change non-trivially the. I think so, uh, but then there is the the stuff that is more immutable, and it's the cultural stuff. And this is what, 
what gets to religion. I mean, I, I became, after I finished the book, kind of obsessed about the religious uh, angle in all of this and wondering why it was that religious observance is what was the predictor of, yeah. of fertility and not sectarian stuff. Because I don't think it is that, you know, religion X says be fruitful and multiply, so that's why people who go to church yeah. do it. I think it has a lot more to do with the view of one's place in the cosmos. Yeah, right. Kind of longer perspective. And this, yeah, and, and here I would I would want to defend the young people who, so there's a certain type of conservative who is obsessed with this stuff who says, the problem is that the kids these days are so selfish that they don't want to go have you. They, they can't delay gratification. And I think that's a, sometimes true, but often very wrong. Like think yeah. about what our high achievers look like. They work incredibly hard in high school because they want to get into a good college. They go to college, they work incredibly hard because they want to get into a good law school. They go to law school, they're busting their asses because they want to get a good clerkship or a good summer internship. They don't even think about engaging in the real world around them until they look up and they're like 27 or 28 years old. And it's not because they can't delay gratification or they're living a decadent lifestyle. They're living a very sort of highly focused achievement, even almost an ascetic lifestyle where they are focused on doing something the difference is that the thing they're focused on doing is deeply internal, and it's a view of the world where the world sort of begins and ends with your journey on it, and you don't really owe anything to the people who've come behind you, uh, and you don't really have any duty to the people who come after you. And I think that's the big worldview difference between the people who practice religion and the people who don't. They feel as though they have a, a debt to the future and an obligation to the past. Uh, an obligation to the past. And that is where it comes in with the sacrifice of having kids because, you know, it's also not a ton of fun is the other thing. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly demanding job. Yeah. Uh, it's a hard job. When, when people – before I had kids, when I would hear people talking about what a hard job it was, I would sort of like roll my eyes and think, you know what? I'm actually a pretty smart guy. I'm going to be okay. Uh, because I thought they meant hard in the way that like organic chemistry is hard or differential equations are hard. But it's not. It's hard in the way that like digging a ditch is hard. Yeah, you, know, you can't you can't outthink your way past you know raising kids. You can't you can't just do it smarter than everybody else and cut thirty percent off the effort. Right. It's just hard. Right. That's why I'm just maybe close on this. I'm a little I am sort of freaked out by the drop in the last six years. These were times of relatively decent econo- econ- uh, decent economy, a lot of immigration. I think I'm yep. like really cut back much. A lot of foreign-born people in the country. I think that's at its highest level in a century. So presumably getting some plus from that, and as far as they haven't quite assimilated yet to the low American rate. Um, and yet the cultural forces were so strong that it wasn't just that we stayed level. We really dropped down yeah. quite a lot. Again, I come back to that. Um, now that presumably is the the cultural change of people, ages, whatever the childbearing years are, you know, 15 to 45 or something like that. Uh, which again, I totally agree with you. It's not that they're selfish or you know decadent, really. It's 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 just a different time horizon and a different priorities. And I do suppose that the sexual revolution combined with feminism has made a massive difference because it was the women in particular who could put a check on the male. I mean, a hundred years ago, you know, careerism. If you just want to be simple-minded about it, and said, well, well, we also have to have a family, and there was a certain division of labor which allowed this to happen. And obviously, with two-income families, as Elizabeth Warren pointed out, that's harder and then one can try to tweak things to make it less hard but you're in a different world than you were 
when this was taken for granted, I suppose, and when the gender roles were, in a sense, uh, apportioned accordingly to a certain view of things. But unless you have some kind of, I don't think we're going to reverse feminism personally, and unless you have a comeback of, let's call it that religious point of view, by which I don't mean actual religion, necessarily religion qua religion, but let's just call it a longer view of what you are here for and what you might want to leave behind, it's a little hard to see how much of this changes very well, it's hard to see how it changes fast anyway, and it's even hard to see how it changes, period, I suppose, unless, you know. It is, but on the other, as I said, nobody expected the baby boom either. So let, yeah. let me let me leave you with a... You know, close with that. So what, what was that about, actually? I mean... So the, the baby boom seems to have been about the war, right? People literally yeah. just were away from the war. They had been confronted with, like, existential end to everything. They came back, and they were just, let's just have, let's just live life now while we yeah. have it. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not saying this is likely to happen. I think it was the depression and the war, don't you think? Yeah. I think that my impression from talking to people of that generation is there was a 15-year period, 1929 to 1945. This is America. I was a a little bit <laughs> in other countries where people basically thought we're in – I mean, everything's falling apart. First, yep. it was more just we can't get a job, and then we have to go you know, migrate someplace where we're working very tough jobs and – and things don't seem to be getting better. They're getting a little better. Whoops, 1937, another recession. Now back to where we were. And then the world's blowing up and then war. And I mean, so after, I suppose, that 15 years, the psychological rebound must have been such to... Yeah. Think about this. So, you know, the, we're living through, I think, a real moment in America um, with the what has been referred to as the Great Awakening, right? The, like, the super progressivization right. of American youth. And at first I thought this was really just something happening online. I've become more in line with the view that this is actually a real movement that we will look yeah. back on as being a real thing. It is not crazy to think that it's possible, again, not luckily, but possible, that the adult expression of this will be a return to family life and a sense of, hey, we are really concerned about the world around us, and the best way you can make a change is to have a family that is a force for good in the world and, you know, raise them and improve your little corner of your world together as a family. Pass on your values and uh, and try to change the world sort of one little corner at a time. And so it's not crazy I mean, to me. for now, it seems to be the opposite. This, that is the, I think well, there's yes. a lot of you change the world one little corner at a time, but the way you change the world one little corner at a time is not by putting more burden on the world, by having more kids and using more fossil fuels, and well, it cuts yes. the other way, right, for this now. Is, for now, but the, those, I mean, these people are all like 18 years old now, right? right. They're, they're kids, and they think the way to change the world one corner at a time is to be on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, again, not crazy to think that it's possible that when these people are 28, 29, right. 30 years old, they decide, actually, you know, like, I've just met this this great girl, this great guy, and I really like my job, and I feel like I'm more enlightened than my parents were, and, like, I don't know, like, we could be really good parents and raise a couple kids and make the right. world a better place. I mean, woke, the term woke, I... I guess, I mean, I've no, never looked this up or really researched this at all. It has an African-American, I think, slang immediate component, uh, which has now migrated into, obviously, the, you know, the broader uh, culture. But really, it comes, I mean, awakening, literally, I mean, it does imply. Religious awakening. Yes. Yeah, and, literally. And, and um, 
which is sort of by contrast with enlightenment, I always thought. I don't know if how much, again, way back when these terms, from the 18th, 19th century, how much these terms were thought to be in contrast. But enlightenment is kind of a belief. You study, you learn. Jefferson, you know, science, progress of science is enlightening us all, et cetera. Um, and awakening is sort of a little different. It is the more you wake up to a religious experience. And if we have the future is to be woke, maybe the religious side of awakening will become stronger as opposed to the you know, environmental or climate change or... Yeah. And doesn't, again, or, it doesn't even have to be related. It could be people who view it even in a right, secular humanist way. Right, right. so that, that would be an interesting can question. Can you get there could through you, secular humanism or... Do we have much evidence that that's ever been, ever really happened much? No. No. <laughs> but again, this time could be different. Well, it is a very new moment. Right. I mean, you, you generally a new moment. Or it could be that the robots take over much sooner than anybody anticipated, and all of this becomes uh, a sideshow to Skynet having become aware and us fighting for our lives against the robots. Yeah, what about robots. that? You actually know quite a lot about the tech stuff. A little just bit. Take I, two I, minutes I, on that. Are you, yes, you think I am. No, no, I, I'm, I'm just being flippant. No, I, I know, but do you, I, how, where are you on the spectrum of, you know, machine learning gets, you know, sort of <laughs> liberates itself from, from, because I do think, I mean, the, the population decline, of course, does put a, quite a lot of pressure on, or rewards even war, uh, don't you think, technological yes. breakthroughs of that kind? Yes, it does. And, and it accustoms us to depending on that, too, I would say, in a certain way, right? Yes, and the, the combination of the software with the hardware is, I think, worrisome. This is where, like, the Andrew Yang universal basic income conversation becomes, a, I think, a conversation we actually should have yeah. in America. Uh, and you don't have to believe that Skynet is the future to be concerned about what the impact will be of automation, robotics, and machine learning and advanced intelligence. Uh, for us, I think the best case scenario is just that the transition takes a long time. If it happens over the course of 40 years, you can make small adjustments on the fly. If there is a big breakthrough that means everything changes within a decade, that's when you wind up with real dislocations and real problems. And in a, in a democracy, the downstream effects of those, you can't just say, oh, well, that's just for this one sector of the population, right? It's just for truck drivers. That's not how in a representative democracy it works. If one large group of people has a problem, they become everybody's problem. And just to get back to you, to close on the actual substance, uh, subtopic of our conversation, it's hard to see how that leads to, hey, let's have more kids. It would seem more obvious that that leads to Oh, my God. I mean, who yeah. knows what the future looks like? But the one thing it doesn't look like is an easy future in which to make a living or in which to, you know, plan ahead. And so I think we'll just hunker down, don't you think? I, mean, I do think so. And there's yeah. some historical truth to that, right? A, a yeah, population. in times of war, right? In, time, in times of war, people stop having kids most of the time. And I would say for, for, for places that are in continual warfare, that is not the case, right? But you have, like, a, a country where you are in... A hot war for five years. People just don't have kids for five years. And depression does. And I'm depressions sorry. will do the same thing, yeah. So that's a little worrisome because we've had growth. And that's, I come back to the fact that in a time of growth, in a time of pretty high immigration, um, we've managed to. Yeah, no, you're, I mean, you're not supposed to go around saying we're doomed, but I, I think we're probably doomed. What an appropriate note to end this conversation on. Jonathan Last, thank you for taking the time and really for putting so much thought into this. And I hope you'll. I don't know if you write another book, but you should certainly write kind of a, you know, where we are X years later, I think, because this, is, this conversation raises a lot of other interesting questions that you are more than capable of dealing I with. I was right. The Jonathan Last story. That would be good. Yeah, that's always a good title. I'm sure the publishers really like that. Sell like hotcakes, right? Thank you for joining me, and thank you for joining us in Conversations.